And welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky. With me today are two very special people, the co-editors of The All, an internet website that uh, covers all sorts of things, Matt Buchanan and John Herman. Hello. Hi. Thank you for being here. This Thanks. is a very somber, sounds like a very serious intro, <laughs> very NPR-ish. Yes. Like we're going to talk about something very somber and serious. It's very warm out. It, it's not that warm out. I thought today is quite beautiful. Anyhow, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Matt and John before we get into this conversation. You may not know them. You probably do, though. You should, because they're great. Uh, before working at The All as co-editors, they worked together at BuzzFeed doing something called Forward, FWD, which was their tech. Is, is it still, is, the, is BuzzFeed's tech thing still called Forward? No. no. That they killed that. I think yeah, Floyd is dead. Yeah, I think Floyd, they still have the, is... the Twitter handle. But then now it's yeah. like a whole, it's kind of a different operation now. It's run out of San they, Francisco. They, much paused, they paused it. It's like a newswire. <laughs> they hit pause. No, they hit fast forward. Because oh. it's like, yeah, they, hired, they hired people. a whole bunch of new people. And, yeah. and Matt Honan, but they hit pause on forward. is editing yes, the, uh, the whole thing out of Yeah, Matt Honan, he's great. It's yeah. great. I got to get him on here. You should. He's another Twitter dad I could be talking to about dad-related issues. That only you can express on Twitter. And then before that, you both worked at Gizmodo. Yes. Yeah. Together. Indeed. Do you think you'll ever work anywhere apart? I We I did. Mean, we tried we, it. It when, didn't work. Oh, that's right. You were at the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work that's out. right. Matt was at the New Yorker. And where were you? Uh, I was at BuzzFeed still. Then. Okay. But All I right. also, I was a freelancer for a while and worked at Popular Mechanics. Did I you feel that your powers were weakened when you were split? Clearly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, anyhow, so that's your background. And we have a lot. I do want to talk a little bit about your Gizmodo years because we were actually, we were just talking about it a little bit before we started. And it was when, when they worked at Gizmodo, I worked at Engadget. So it was like the heyday of gadget blogging, of like real gadget blogging, right? I was an intern when moment. you took over uh, at Engadget. Yeah. I was sitting in, in Bliant, Bliant, Jesus. Uh, Bliant. <laughs> <Brian, laughs> that's, that's, that's a person. Brian Lamb, uh, uh, we used to work out of his house in, in San Francisco, and the the news came down. Yeah. I guess you'd say that yeah. you were taking over. And I remember sitting around in his living room, thinking like, "Huh, Josh, wonder Brian how this like, is going to go." What's that? <laughs> wonder how this is going to go. Wonder how it's going to go. <laughs> Nobody knew. How will this tall Jewish guy do? It's exactly what we were. That's why we were <laughs> wondering. Exactly we were like, he's very said. tall and he's Jewish. Brian was like, "What's his religion? Of pace. <laughs> how was he raised?" <laughs> that was the first thing he asked. <laughs> yeah, I, he likes to get all the details. I know parents. how he operates. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyhow, so, but now you're together at the all and the all is, everybody's talking about the all. You just had a big feature done on you at, uh, by the verge, my former thing. And it was like a big deal. Like you have photos. There were photos. It was lengthy. Mm -hmm. You guys were quoted. My hair was lengthy. Yeah. I had yeah. a cut since then. I was thinking maybe it looked a little bit shorter to me. Why'd you get a cut? It's, it's too hot. I mean, like my, you really, this heat is really bothering you. <laughs> Well, I'm having so a whole seems haircut to be all dilemma. You can talk about. Well, there's well, I'm have, I've been having a haircut dilemma because like the my haircut for the last two years, which is sort of I guess you could call a high and tight or mm -hmm. like uh, I wouldn't, the call, Hitler I wouldn't youth. call it that. I find that offensive. Well, there's the also Hitler the youth. Hitler youth <laughs> is even more offensive, actually. Weirdly, um, but so like, what's the haircut 
after that like because well, it's become very what do you mean what's the haircut after that well what haircut you mean, like when you go shorter well well my hair is the only thing i have i have like no other redeeming quality i don't think that's um, true i think you have a very nice looking face you have a beautiful body <laughs> uh, you're very stylish your brain seems to be functioning well your hair is a great feature uh, let's talk about actually because you're both redheads right Are you, mm. do you consider john you consider yourself a redhead oh yeah Oh yeah. I guess. Do you consider yourself? <laughs> Anyhow, you're both redheads. Uh, do you think that that is helpful in this in this union? In this in this, does that uh, in some way people, give you a connection that other people wouldn't have? It makes it easy to reduce us to like one word. Yeah, yeah. It make, it makes it easier like for, for people who people write stories about you. Refer mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, or just like emails around the office. Oh really? Like every. I, I think this is maybe the third time now that there's been an email that goes to both of us. Called gingers. Oh, I think there was one. At, is it offensive? It seems a no, little offensive. No, it's fine. Are you it's sure? Fine. I think it's yeah. only offensive in like the UK, but like who cares? Right, <laughs> UK. Come on, let's not. Let's talk about real countries. Okay, like America. <laughs> Anyhow, so it's been a busy week in media. Busy couple weeks in media. Too busy. Too busy. I think the the well, business is going just going to keep accelerating until. <laughs> Until it stops. Well, I mean, you guys actually do. I mean, you do a lot of you specifically do a lot of media criticism. Some might say, some yeah, might sort of. It's, it's really like I, I think I'm st- still at heart a, a tech reporter, and so almost all this stuff that is called media coverage is basically tech coverage. Well, isn't like I feel like I, for instance, um, Farhad Manju was tweeting t- with some people today about the difficulty of placing links into New York Times stories. Right. Somebody was complaining, like, how come they didn't link to this or that, which the Times doesn't do. I think, I don't know for sure, but I think for editorial reasons, not for, like, technical reasons. But there was, like, a whole thread about people talking about how hard it was to put links into a Times story for some reason, like, technically. But I do think a lot of our our media stories end up being about technology now because there is no media without technology and basically, like, delivery systems and advertising systems and... Systems of of information exchange are sort of the backbone of what media is. Well, yeah, and the Lincoln conversation is funny to have now because it's like you're fighting over these tiny scraps, you know, like a a New York Times link three or four years ago or five or six years ago would have meant like you you would have been like, well, why why did we get a bunch of traffic on the story? And then you have to go back and look and you're like, oh, the Times linked to us and it got put on the front page. Now it shows up in your chart beat. It's like eleven people. Yeah. No one. No one's going to click any no link anywhere. Links. Yeah. It's just like they're it, scared. It's they're really scared about, about professional courtesy. So I read Drudge, conversations Drudge, like that. Drudge like, still drives a lot of traffic. Yeah. But, Surprisingly, in a way that I can't fully understand, Drudge still a very powerful force. That'll be a. It'll be a weird day when that. Yahoo. Stops. Yahoo. Very powerful in driving traffic. I was looking at them the other day. They. I remember they had hired a bunch of people to do new sections but then i looked at the sections and a lot of them are like syndicated stuff remember the tech thing oh yeah of course was i think it it's still yahoo tech yeah it's, i think it was just, tech. It's still going. It's just i don't like... want to mock it but that is a joke and it was a joke and <laughs> well, it was introduced at ces with who david pogue was Pogue's still there. He's, still, he's still drawing a paycheck oh yeah i'm sure he's taking money um i think but, it's really hard to launch a section of anything now i know i agree i actually i actually was talking to somebody who uh, i worked with who had gotten a job offer from Yahoo Tech. And I was like, here's the thing. Even if it's a great a great offer and a great position and really good money, people are never going to fall in love with something called Yahoo Tech. 
Like they're just not. They're and not like even the audience, find it. The audience is just going to be always very like limited to like whoever happened to pass by the front page of Yahoo, and there was like a tech story on the front page of Yahoo that is being linked to. But even that, like that, I feel like that isn't as much about Yahoo as it is about the way people read stuff. Like, oh no, it is. It's not Yahoo's so, fault. So you can compare Yahoo to something that's much more got much more of a coherent identity that is like meant to be loved. Sort of. Even even then, it's like. You you can make a you can make a favorable comparison. You can't like, it's very hard to make a case for a publication that people are going to become really loyal to now. Is it? It's a very hard sell. Yeah, I disagree. No one's raising money to do it. Well, I think the pro. I think we. I do think we have a problem of like we're creating like mega brands. I wrote about this a little bit recently, but I think we're creating like mega brands that do everything, and they're sort of like the Yahoos and AOLs of of yesteryear. And I don't. Well, who I, do you who do you think those are? BuzzFeed. I think Vox has the potential to become, but the, like, yeah, nobody goes direct, like not that many people go directly to BuzzFeed, right? I mean, some people do. I mean, tons of people. I'm not, do. Call, I'm not do. saying they're portals. Tons of people do, but the way portals. most people read it is I'm not, saying, not. I'm not calling them portals, though. I'm saying they're just like the everything brand. But those yeah. brands, like AOL and Yahoo, be, became everything brands because they had space to fill. Yeah, they were like, we've got all these people. We got to. We have all this like space that we're letting other people fill. They they have a similar they had a similar dilemma to the ones that all the big social networks have now, but it was like tidier because it was like they just have a website that people go to all the time right. and their emails there. Well, it was also when search was up for grabs and it was like, where are you going to find stuff? They like, had home, maybe, literally like, they had Google homepages. Like, thing. Right. People open up their computers and they and it was like, here I am on Hotmail. No, that's but that's why they continue to thrive in many ways. That's why they mm. still have huge footprints because people still have those homepages. Right. I but, mean, my father, I think my father's computer, I don't think it does anymore, but for a time he had a computer that opened up to MSN. That was like his home page. Every time he opened the browser, it was like MSN. And so he actually ended up reading and sharing a lot of links from MSN because there it is. Well, yeah. So let me ask you a question. Is, is, uh, how's, media do, how's media and journalism doing nowadays? Good or bad? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, we're all in the field of, uh, we're all journalists. We're all in the field of media for lack of a better term, or journalism. Uh, Doing in what sense? How are things going? How are things, in what sense? Because there are a lot of different ways one can take that question. Like, is it doing good work? Do you mean, is it going to survive? Like, is it, uh, is it a living we should encourage other people to go into? (laughs) Okay, so I would say, I actually think it's very lucrative right now, if you're good at it. I think it's a very, I think it's kind of a seller's market. There are a lot of people there are a lot of media companies hiring a lot of people to make things. Yeah. So I actually feel like it's kind of a good period for that. I think it's a, I mean, I was looking at this Gawker stuff and, you know, Max Reed quit and uh, who else quit? Tommy. Tommy Craggs. And, that we know of. That we know of. We'll talk about Gawker in a minute. But but I was thinking, like, I was actually going to tweet, like, it's a great time to be freelance because I think it is. Like, I think there's more publications than ever. I think it's ever. a good time to be looking for a job. I don't think it's a great time to be freelance. No, maybe not. Okay, maybe freelance is the wrong if word. You, if you can freelance at a certain level, right? If you can get, like, Times Magazine slots, if you can get, like, Business Week assignments, if you can get, like, if you're able to, you're, like... It's such get, a tiny pool. It's, like, yeah, it's, almost, it's, super it's small. almost like it doesn't exist. Yeah. I might have a skewed perspective. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible my perspective isn't perfectly. No, but I do think like but I do think it's a seller's market right now. I think that people are desperate for good yeah, there's a lot for of good money. editors and writers. There's a lot of money going into a lot of places and there are a lot of people trying new things. I think when people talk about like the media and how things seem to be in turmoil, I think they're referring to like the coherent capital M media composed of the newspapers and the magazines and the the TV stations. And the and newspapers like, and the magazines still rule. Is that 
your perception? No, uh, they rule in some ways. They they certainly provide like again the most coherent image of a media. They very they talk about they, like they they talk about themselves in terms of mission and beat and subject and like you know there there isn't really that same sort of sense of reputation and self-image in in new media yet because everyone's changing so fast and everyone's so new. Right. But anything anything that has been around for more than a few years, I think, is entering or in the middle of a period of like very very serious change. Um dark bad change. I mean, mostly. Like I think does this, this explain Gawker? Uh I think it explain yeah, it explains basically Every weird thing that's happening in media now, Gawker is a, a network of very successful blogs, basically, and the blogs disrupted a lot of things. They came, they came in, and newspapers looked at them, and they were like, "This is this is weird," and they're aggregating too much. And then they sort of watched that image fill out into something that contained reporting and and had more of an identity of its own, and became bigger than most newspapers as an organization and as a business. Like the the period of the web sort of eating everyone's lunch, taking advantage of its not having, you know, a print product and and all this like that is kind of actually tapering down a little bit because something newer is here. That's that was only twenty what years. Is, what's the newer thing? The intermediate new thing is like sites that are organizations that are web based but really savvy at social stuff. Right. Like BuzzFeed being the biggest example, obviously, but. There are plenty of other people who watched BuzzFeed and, and did a similar thing. What do you mean, like, to explain, like, sort of the shift you're talking about? It's like part of it is, like, rather than producing stuff for the web, it's like you're putting it directly on Facebook or on yeah, Snapchat that's, that's or that's where the eventual thing goes. So you have, like, well, you have not, websites it's who It's not are, eventual. I consider it to be momentary. The direct distribution stuff? I mean, yeah, because I know everybody's talking about distribution today, but, like, an aggregation and all this bullshit. But, I mean, the reality is... <laughs> there are about a thousand things you can't do on Facebook that you can do when you own like your publishing. Yeah, but with a much smaller audience. Like, yeah, the, but the, I, no, I get that. I get that. But at its at its height, Time Magazine had four million subscribers. Right. You know, I mean, the, like the idea that, that the audience should be a hundred million and two or two hundred million or a billion. Well, part of that is, is fucking is fucking crazy. Right, but part of it is by it's revenue. Good. It's because Time Magazine could like like the revenue per user, if you want to use today's yeah, standard, right. right, was like crazy it's high. Crazy high, right? And, and 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 because because the because the early ad dollars. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been thinking about media and like what I want to do next or could do next. I think like you look at the advertising models for digital media it's like based on the early part of digital like news and publishing which is bad really bad and they're like hey, your users are worth way less than our you know we don't have yeah. subscribers and your users aren't really worth that much so in order to like reach 10 million really valuable people we need 100 million impressions or whatever you know what i mean like the the scale of advertising versus like I mean, the scale is so crazy. Well, but that that was something that, like, you know, more and more people are getting online. More and more people were reading news on websites. Those numbers were the hope was that eventually, if that was if that had stayed stable enough for a long enough time, that you'd get more accurate measurement. The true value of a of a reader would be better established. They'd be targeted better. Whatever. Right. But I mean, the reality is, like, a subscriber to your magazine is always going to be more valuable than a hundred million random eyeballs that found your story somewhere. Well, sort of. I mean, I certainly one to one, like the person who in, who intends to read your thing and then picks it up and physically handles it and looks and at pays it. Pays for like, it. You can you can 
glean a lot from that. <laughs> well, I mean, just think about the act of buying a $5 magazine versus the act of reading there something. There are $5 magazines yeah. still? Well, uh, I don't know how much they are. I think so, The New Yorker yeah. is like 8 Everything's or 9 is it, is it more? No, but yeah, there must be like some. Like maximum, I think maximum you can get for $5. I have no wow. idea. I don't know. Anyhow, but the point is, like, the circulation is not going to ever be $100 million. No one's ever going to... No, 100 no, million people won't pay $6 no, for anything. The, the problem is you suddenly... Uh, it is possible to reach 100 million people with a relatively new property. And yeah. that that is really interesting and weird and exciting. And everyone's like, this is a huge opportunity. Right. There are people who are like, this is a huge opportunity. We're going to figure out how to like get in there, become part of that, and then like stake our claim. Then there are the people who are like, okay, we, we have a website and we have maybe we have a paper. We have all these employees and we have all this apparatus. We suddenly have the ability to get access to all these people by doing a number of things that we never would have done before. They do them. They get an audience. They don't leave those people on the table because they don't have a choice. Like they, they're going to take shitty ad rates for 50 million new visitors that they didn't have a year ago that month. Right. That's going to have such a profoundly distorting effect on their business that when it changes, they're not going to be equipped to deal with it. And that's what's happening now is you have all the, like everyone's traffic for the last few years was amazing. Part of that was that there are just more people looking for news online. A bigger part of that was because these platforms that had become so big, like big on a scale that a publication could never dream of. Facebook, Facebook basically, but right. also Twitter, also Pinterest is huge. Right. Is Facebook permanent? Is it forever? No, of course not. Nothing I mean, is. I'm just curious. Like, do you think that like it can't, is it, is it Google for social? I mean, Microsoft was forever and now it's like. Yeah. Was, my, was Microsoft forever? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think so? Yeah. yeah I mean, people thought we needed the government to break it up. It was so permanent. Didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Did that we help break? Through. And how's it going for Microsoft? Fine, but you yeah. know, it's not, no one thinks about them in the same way. Well, it's so like, I don't understand. So where's the government, where's the government intervention for Facebook? It's all too fast and no one knows what to do. They have way it. more users than Microsoft product. No, I guess they no, don't. That's not I, I guess they I don't. mean, there's a, like, but yeah, Microsoft had like comparable. 50% of the population of the planet was using a Microsoft product. The computer using public. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like Facebook no, it's is. More than, it was more than that. It was like 98% actually. But Facebook is like truly enormous. Like they are comparable. Right. And scale. Right. Especially as they move into the developing world, like if you look at like what they're doing with like internet there, where they're yeah. coming preloaded on phones that they're subsidizing the internet on, and which so is for super, like, which is super, super crazy thing, you know, where, right, it's where like, the yeah. internet is it's like free to you. use. It's like free to use the Facebook stuff, and the other stuff costs you money in like developing nations. Yeah, so Facebook is the internet for this group of people, which is insane. Right? Yeah, but I, I yeah, I, I do think that's kind of what's coming. And so to get back to this first question about how the media is doing. Anyone who's gonna, who's oh, willing yeah. to play that game and who's going to be a part of that is getting in on something that will be at least temporarily big and fast and weird and is it, is unpredictable. That Anyone who's not ready to do that now needs to like figure Leave. out what they're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. So you're saying anybody who's willing to like, I'm going to publish my stories on Facebook, yeah. basically, they're good to go. But for I, the, I, for, I, a while. For, the, for a short time. Well, just but well, anybody yeah. who's like, I'm not, I'm going, I'm not going to relent. I'm not going to put my stories on that platform. Is 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 basically doomed? Is what you're saying? No, I just think they would need to have they have a different an, set of pressures. Yeah, they would need to have a different way to make money than you know display advertising or like. But I guess what I wonder is, does the user differentiate that much between content they can get on Facebook and content they leave Facebook for. No, I think that's part of why the Facebook thing will work. But if they're already getting most of their stuff from Facebook anyway, and I see it like anecdotally, like more and more of my friends who aren't in media, like back home in Georgia, like 
putting way, way, way more stuff on Facebook, like in the last six months to a year. And like, that's just like where they're getting all their news. So right. like, why would they come back off of it if it's all like right there? Yeah. And like, I think you can just look at what happened with video really quickly. It was like on Facebook, you could upload videos, but no one really did. And then suddenly the ice bucket thing happened. <laughs> and like that was that was a complicated thing, but it was enormous. And then Facebook started like thinking more seriously about hosting video. And it's had, from what I've heard, a pretty serious effect on on YouTube's outside traffic. Oh, like yeah. Facebook was an enormous source of traffic well, the, for YouTube. The way That's they... not there. You said, I mean, I, there was this great comment thread, like I, I can't remember where it was now. It was somewhere deep in Metafilter. It was some some ex Google engineers talking about how they couldn't believe it the first time they saw a YouTube video streaming in newsfeed embedded with their ads in it. Yeah. They were like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, how long is this going to be allowed to happen? And the answer was a pretty long time. And then now Facebook's like, we have a video product. It's better for our users because it starts playing instantly. Yeah. We like the controls are there. It loads with the app. You don't have to like call some outside site in there. It, like think of it from their perspective. It's the most obvious thing in the world. They haven't put ads over it yet. Like, they haven't figured out how to do that yet. Well, how do you run pre-roll on a muted video? Right. But they'll, you know, that's, well, Twitter, this is now, this is now their doing wonderful that. problem to have yeah. that they can no, right. figure but out. No, right. But it is unbelievably sticky. But the, this difference between inside outside, with YouTube, it was even smaller. It was like there were you could literally embed them in the feed for a while. And still, it was like a total, like that that little time difference, that behavioral difference, the way it feels different is it really matters a lot when people are scrolling by you in like one second. I mean, yeah, except you have to admit, this is not just Facebook going like, what's best for our users in this situation? Well, no, that's how they put it. It's just like, right. what, what's going to get people to use Facebook more? Right, what's going to get people to use Facebook more? And and admittedly, a video that starts playing when you don't do anything and doesn't have sound so it's not annoying and yeah. like might make you stop in your feed and watch it for a few seconds or a few minutes... Which is what happens, which is the incredible thing about Facebook video now, is that you're scrolling through your feed and you see something pl like basically playing and you're like, I'll stop and look at this. Yeah. And because a lot of the stuff is subtitled, I mean, maybe all of it, I don't know, at this point, it seems like... A lot of it. You kind of like, of... just stop. Yeah. You know, who thought subtitles would be... <laughs> who thought subtitles would be something that people really wanted? <laughs> like, yeah. You think about the mass of people... You know, most people don't like subtitles. I love subtitles. I put really? them, this is like a big fight with me and my girlfriend. It's not a big <laughs> I, fight, I but hate, it's like a thing I that's like... Subtitles. You mean like you put subtitles on you put them on? That, you put them on games? You you yeah. oh, I hate that shit. Yeah, have them on... <laughs> Way to suck yourself out of the experience by reading subtitles. I have them on subtitles. with like Arkham City. Like, uh, it's been... Arkham Knight? Uh, Arkham Knight, yeah. Yeah, we gotta talk about that. Actually, let's take a break, because there's an ad <laughs> that I have to do. We'll be right back. Today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash Joshua and using code Joshua. So you spend about a third of your life sleeping. You probably want to make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies for better nights and brighter days, latex foam and memory foam. So they've got just the right sink, just the right bounce, no matter how you sleep. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you. You can try the bed for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. At the store, maybe you'll get a minute to try their mattresses. With Casper, you'll actually get to sleep on it for 100 days, which is 
a long time to be asleep if you ask me, but you know what? Different strokes for different folks. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, it's a pretty crazy price point. So get your $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash Joshua and using code Joshua. Terms and conditions apply. Call me crazy for saying this. Feel free to tell me that this sounds crazy. Doesn't it feel like we went faster than we should have on technology, like on like mobile technology? It was like when the first iPhone had Edge and everybody was like, what the, why? Like the blackjack has 3G. Like, why does this have Edge? And then Apple brought out like the 3GS or whatever, or the 3G and then the 3GS. But didn't it feel like we were, at that point, it was clear that Apple knew something that maybe we didn't. And like now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, we'd move way faster than we should have. Well, I mean, it felt like it was going to take forever to get, like, 4G to get... Like, I remember when LTE was, like, a cool thing. We had to, like, wait for and explain, like, oh, man, this is fucking going to take forever. Our internet's going to be so Yeah, but LTE compared to Wi-Fi, for instance. Yeah. And, like, Wi-Fi here compared to Wi-Fi in other countries. When When you make the comparison, it's fucked up. Like You mean, like, LTE or, like... I mean, like, like, like broadband countries. service oh, or whatever. Yeah, you okay. mean the market hasn't provided, like, exactly? I mean, that we don't have, I mean, that in America, we don't have any cohesive system to provide, like, upgrades to the overall network that makes sense for every I know, user. I was, yeah. I mean, I was making a kind of like a, a thing people have been talking about with, like, Uber stuff lately, like, and sort of it fighting with cities has been like, well, the market will, like, provide and dictate. And it's like, well, right. wait, the market hasn't provided. The fast broadband. No, this, is the great, weird. this is the great free market. I mean, this is the great free market argument that always, <laughs> at least in America, seems to like break down in really fundamental and important ways. I mean, I think it's like it's like w- the expansion, the rapid expansion is amazing, but like we don't have infrastructure in place to actually handle what what it is we're made. I mean, we don't have infrastructure to handle like bridges. So like, to what is get, it like eighty percent of all bridges in America need repair work? It's some yeah, crazy and those, are, and like those that. are bridges and roads have been around forever. <laughs> this and is bridges pretty have been far around forever. From the iPhone upgraded really fast. No, but it's not. But it's not actually in a way. It's well, like you can build a bridge out of iPhones if you have enough of them. <laughs> no, and, and actually, and actually, they don't need three G at all to operate as a bridge. But the thing is, like, I, but the thing is, it's like you do you. I do think we we we've moved so quickly. And so, like, blindly into... I'm not knocking it. Like, this is what happens. Like, you have this explosion of technology. But, like, yeah, web pages have a bunch of shit on them. They're, like... Well, I think... Big, what, there's, like, a law... What's the law with software? Like, it'll sort of... Software becomes sufficiently... Like, it, given, like, a certain amount of resources or a certain amount of CPU speed, software will become, like, b- as bloated as, like, hardware allows it to be. Yeah, and you're kind of seeing at, the same thing with bandwidth. Yeah, look at, but look at OS ten, the new versions of OS ten, or the newest version of iOS, or Apple Music. Like, people are talking about this today. Like, it's so bad. And yeah, but it's so slow. But you're, I mean, talk, yeah. talk about things moving too fast. Like, iOS on an iPhone is, is are starting to feel like an old platform. Right. Like, this is this is what's implicit about the, the Apple Watch, is that Apple's, like, mindful of making sure that something else doesn't come next because it knows that like there's there's something really fundamentally broken about the way ios works now that will be obvious once someone figures out how to fix it which is that you open it up and there's just a there's still the same grid that there was in 2007 yeah like there's more in it there's more stuff to do you can android phone you can still still though you open it up and you have some widgets well no it is it is actually it is actually like that's the thing that was so interesting about what google now is doing and what apple's trying to do with their new thing what is it called like it's the the deep app store like 
I forget the name. It was right. a bad that's name. That's bad. That's bad that we none of us it could think of the matter, name. Though. Like the name's but not it's like this matter. predictive like it'll know what you want to do before you do it. It knows what app you want to use. Like that kind of stuff. Like suddenly it's like you're going to start. I mean, we think about these things as I mean, we still think about things as like these segmented squares on a screen. You go into this one and into that one and into that one. And like none of them know what you're doing. None of them talk to each other. Well, right. there was a big, I feel like there was a big pundit explosion six months ago where everybody saw all the notifications or like the new home screen. Like I mean, I've been using an Android phone for the last couple of months and I actually, or last month or so. And what I've found is really an interesting difference between using an Android phone now and using an iPhone is that I like live out of the notifications. I've made this observation before, but like the notifications become the place where like you're going between apps and you're like replying to things and you're like making decisions on what you want to do versus like going to dig down and say, I'm opening this now I'm going to do yeah, something. It's, it's like, I think Android is a smarter system at this point. The problem, the reason I stick with an iPhone is the apps are still better, but like the, it's, it's iMessage. crazy. It's crazy how, it is crazy how stupid and bad and broken notifications are in iOS. They're fucked up. Well, I actually the, got my iPhone out today and it was like, I'm going to switch back because iMessage is driving me crazy. Because basically like, everybody I know has an iPhone. And if you're not part of iMessage, like when you somebody sends a video, you get like some sort of weird 3GP video that's right. like, oh, yeah. it's, like two pixels tall and it looks like, you know, and my daughter looks like a distorted mutant in it. And I'm like, this is the worst thing in the world. Well, there's still some like basic problems with uh like group like when i was using an android phone for a while uh recently i was just not getting group messages but this is because it's again like but again because all my friends are on iMessage this goes like, back to that argument that we're, we're that like group messaging is based on some technology mms and sms are like from the dark ages of right. technology they're like from 19 19- 86 or something like that's when those were invented 1981 i don't know when they were invented but like that whole idea there's a character limit on yeah. sms like you're sending these little packets of data through the cellular network, and I don't well, know. because they're like tucked it's, inside of other data. Like it's basically that's why when people were charging like absurd amounts for it, it was crazy because it's like this data is carried anyway for free. Right. right. No, well, that, that was sort of what kickstarted a lot of the big um, messaging apps. I'm not even I'm not sure if WhatsApp was one of them, but there were all these apps for years that were like, give us give us a buck or give us like buy this app and we'll, well do like, unlimited messages well, for like free. WhatsApp. And they got, it's, they got, it's, it's they got to be huge just because SMS was fucked right. up. Right. I mean, I mean, iMessage is WhatsApp for Apple products, essentially. Like, it's basically like a better... But here's... Actually, we should... We could talk... We could do a whole episode about this and maybe we will. But that's actually really interesting because we... It's like we are moving away from having, like identifiers that are universal like an email address is universal like you send an email it goes to an inbox somewhere you send from your inbox to something like it's completely agnostic you can have like a million different apps that manage your inbox but they're all totally like boxer is an email app you can have or inbox or gmail or apple mail or any of these things and they all work differently they all display your shit differently they have different actions or whatever email is ruined like there's no recovery no i know that but email is (laughs) universal like a phone number is universal it's not anymore though like yeah the address is no it used to be but i'm saying but now we're going to a situation where you've got like these like Oh, you're on WhatsApp, or you're on GroupMe, or you're on Slack, or you're on whatever Google these Hangouts, things are. Google Hangouts, and they're you know, Google Hangouts, and they're all like super. It's like if you're not on the platform with the other people with your unique identifier on that platform, then you're like an, you're in no man's land. Well, the but thing I, also... I think the thing I get caught between is when I start a conversation with somebody on one thing, like iMessage, and it's like, wait, did I talk to you on iMessage or was it Hangouts? You know, was Palm it... actually had a really good. I had to say this, but like WebOS had <laughs> yeah, this idea changed. that it would like link <laughs> it would link together all of your communications. And I think Windows Phone kind of did this a little bit. Yeah, but it basically be like, oh, you're on GChat or you're SMSing with somebody or you're on this Skype 
Skype or whatever, and it would basically put it to you in a feed, and you'd see all of your communications with that person. Like their phone number would be their identifier. But that's their like email I think that was too identifier. obvious of a play on on anyone's part to like own it. No, like, I think the problem is that people want to own your attention, just the same way as the platform. Well, yeah, if Microsoft having. figured that out or whatever, and then everyone's in there, then the, at one point they're just. I mean, this is the dynamic that rules everything in my mind. So I'm. It's probably I'm probably like deluded at this point about this. I'm like fixated on this idea, but like Microsoft contain if they manage to contain every notification for your texting and your and your calls and your emails and thread them together effectively, then they would create something that they should very clearly own if that worked and everyone started using it they'd right. be like oh well actually let's unless just replace they, this with they, microsoft unless they were interested in the user no well that's they they, they mean, are Google to the basically extent did that with hangouts right they went from um jabber like open source where you can kind of use it anywhere to like now hangouts is proprietary but i'm saying no but the way to do it would be to say like okay every Everything that can be a message or like any communication between you or me, whether it's like a video or a photo or a, a text message or whatever it is, like I can do all of those things in 20 different apps. But like you're still you and I'm still me. Right. Like we're still communicating on that. Yeah. And but you I could, think, hypothetically, you could thread that together. But like, I think John's right that whoever was doing that threading would eventually be like, well, we should have our own. Right. Which yep. is user aggressive and it sucks for like the consumer and it's the like, most, makes it's for the a worse communication. It's the most obvious choice for anyone doing that to make. But it's like it's like saying you can only call Sprint customers if you have a Sprint phone. I mean, that's no, no, sort no, of you, what you, they, the, there was service to service free minutes for a long yeah, time. Yeah, there right? was. Like, and, and then there wasn't. But like, <laughs> I'm saying that like companies don't act in the best interest of their users often. They act in the best interest of them as companies. So, yeah. well, that's how they survive. That's capitalism. Well, I mean, because yeah, ultimately, it's, you also think about, they, it's also how they fail. I well, mean, it's also sure. how they. Well, if you think about it, like their ultimate, I forget where I was reading this, but like really, like the 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 real end user for like for this thing is like the shareholder. It's not like like that's who right. the the, right. the company is ultimately answering to. It's not their users. It's their shareholders. Right, they can't answer to shareholders if they piss their users off, and so there's got to be a point where you. Anyhow, okay, let's talk about two things really quickly because I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about. Two things that are not in the news. And there are two things in the news. <laughs> one I know a lot about. One I don't know a lot about. Because I've been, you know, I'm not working right now. Enjoy Let's, it. I want to talk about Gawker a little bit. I know I know it's a sensitive subject because you're both former Gawker. <laughs> it's just a conflicted subject. People, like, conflicted, literally, conflicted. Like, there are a well, lot of disclosures. Actually, and... <laughs> I actually want to talk about, like, this in the context of what we were just discussing, which is, like, so I'll just quickly give an overview of. And by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably haven't followed this as closely as other people. Well, nobody's written, literally nobody's written anything that's been 100% correct okay. about this. So here's my understanding as, a, as an outside observer with a little bit of inside information. Last week, was it last week? Yeah. God, it's, it seems like it was a long time ago now. Last week, Gawker published a story about a dude who is the CFO of Condé Nast who was like going to pay for sex with a dude. And he's married and has three kids. He had a, a text message exchange with this guy, uh, and the guy ended up like kind of trying to blackmail him because he was having some housing problems, and it got it spiraled out of control. The rendezvous never happened, and this guy instead went to Gawker and said, "Hey, I have all these text messages from this guy from Condé Nast who is like trying to have gay sex with somebody." Is that right so far? Yeah, yeah, more or less, more or less. It's like it's hard to. Yeah, I think it was it was the way it seemed was like the guy started making this arrangement and then got a sense that like it was it could go bad in the way that it did and like pulled pulled back right right because the well or who knows you don't know initially everything was fine like the arrangement was fine but then the the escort found out who 
he his was. client yeah, was, right. and that he was, he was Tim Geithner's brother. Right. And so he... I didn't want to expose him any further, but that's fine. We'll just bleep I that. I mean, that's... The, uh, yeah, the, the idea was I mean, that this person like, could he, use his influence to Right, he thought that because a, he was Tim Geithner's brother, yeah. he could use Tim Geithner's influence in the government to get something that he needed. Yes. And then so at that point, it was like abort. Right. Like this is... Right. So then, then Gawker ran a story about it. Yes. And then we could sit here and debate, and I'm sure we could debate, like, whether or not they should have run the story. I'll be honest with you. I'll just say how I feel. I don't think they should have run the story. My take on it is, like, the CFO of Condé Nast, while being interesting to Gawker, because Gawker is a media organization and Condé Nast is a media organization, is not a newsworthy media subject. And did probably, like, I'm tr- I, I, I labor to find the justification for, like, First off, like outing a guy who we don't know what his status is at all. Like, yeah, for all we know, know, like, he's like, his it wife, could have been agreed his, on between yeah, the his two. His wife yeah. may be like cool with it. Like, I mean, seriously, relationships are fucked up and screwy now. Like, everybody's doing their own thing. Like, it's not like now. some normal nuclear. Fa- no, but like yeah. the nuclear family is has has been blown up, revealed as a sham. It is a sham, and like people live in all sorts of different ways. Like, we don't know the circumstances of this guy's life, but we do know he has like three kids who are old enough to read the internet and certainly old enough to hear from their friends about this. And like, when you think about the news value versus like this human being and his family, it's like hard to fucking see how it's yeah, the, a story. The thing I that, mean, it's it's like the lens is very opinion. old Gawker, right? Which like yeah. 2005 Gawker would have been very interested in anything about a Connie Nass executive because that's that was like one of its primary right. subjects. And it was a smaller world. Like that, that universe of Gawker and Conde was like much smaller in the sense that like the people who were on the internet reading about anything in 2005 were the people in media yeah it, it also sort like, of like, wasn't like the whole world it matches the contours of of a gawker story the kind that would like that would make you feel kind of gross but that you would read and that was sort of like part it was like a you know a gossip story it's like a, and it was or pre, like a or like a national yeah. Enquirer story the the and thing it was is pre-twitter and pre-facebook it, ma- right. it matches the contours but but the the argument is that it doesn't meet like the various thresholds it would have to pass as a story about someone in a certain industry with a certain family with certain doing a certain thing like none of the thresholds were sufficiently right met for right. like the newsworthiness like right. i, I like, think that's it didn't sort hit of, gawker's like watermark it's like the right word it cloud of of stuff but then like you instantiate <laughs> it it's like not quite yet yeah. i don't know <laughs> the right tag cloud at any rate so that happened and it was a shit storm everybody went crazy and i get it i get why they would but then there's this other side of it which basically like the post got pulled and it got pulled based on Nick Denton and the board of Gawker deciding to pull it versus the editorial team deciding to pull it. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, more or less. That's like the gist of it. There's like a committee of people. Right. Yeah. But so I don't want to, I don't want to go into the details of that because I think it's been talked about like to a ridiculous degree on the internet, especially in media circles. But the question actually goes back to our earlier conversation, which is like, isn't all of this like kind of born out of like a desperate attempt to like, get more people like get more people reading Gawker and also like to please advertisers. I mean, it's pulled because like there's part of it that's like, it seems like it's pulled because advertisers were talking about or thinking about backing out. Like that's the story that I got, but it also is like produced because like the, the space for like eyeballs and trying to get maximum amount of eyeballs seems like to be hyper competitive, like because of Buzzfeed particularly, I mean, a lot of other publications, it seems like the des- there's like a desperation almost. But I, don't th- but I don't think that's necessarily true in this case, because like, I think Gawker would have done it like, I don't, like, I, like that was not a story done strictly for like a large number of eyeballs. Like right. that's, well, 
It has, but it does have the shades of a Gawker story that has been historically the like the really right. crazy performing Gawker stories where it's yeah, like sort of. Well, I mean, the really crazy like Gawker performing stories like that are like you know they had the Tom Cruise Scientology video and that was like a million hits or right. like right. But there, it's like a much cleaner thing because it's here's someone who is powerful. The church is like already known to be corrupt and and like. But they're but, but, right. But they need more of that. Is what I'm saying. Like you well, can't. But the, anyway, yeah. I see. What, I see, what, just you're, I see like, what you're getting at. But it's not like it's not like there is a directive to like get a whole bunch more traffic and by getting huge scoops or something like that. I think what is reflected is like a general anxiety about you know other other news organizations. The whole internet has changed a lot in the last couple of years, and it has made the future really uncertain for like you know the the web media gawker right. included right and they're sort of like an early and very visible example so like there's uh, there's a lot of indirect relationship uh, there's an indirect relationship i think between like these pressures uh and this uncertainty about like what any websites are anymore and like what they're going to be in a few years i mean the reason the post is pulled was because you know before it went up i think you know nick denton was like vaguely aware of it and was sort of like ambivalent or whatever a supportive maybe no, yeah. he, I wouldn't even I think know that. He tweeted tweet about he, it. No, he wasn't really no. involved because, like, we, because I, I talked to him like as it was going up, and like we had sort of like a conversation about sort of the politics of outing now, but it was a very sort of like, like it, it was very distanced right. from like that post. Because that's a, like, I mean, that's a whole other conversation but, yeah. about that, like the whole outing now. Yeah, I think that's it. changed a lot. Anyway, but it, yeah, it went up, and then it was like just roundly condemned. People were like this is horrible, and then yeah. he. Was like, oh, this is this is bad, which is completely bizarre for Nick Denton. Like he's, I can't remember any time ever that he's apologized for anything. No, but he's always cared a lot about what like people say about his sites and and stuff you don't like think that. It's, you don't think it's ad driven that 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 there's. I mean, a it, that's part of it, but like, but I think it, it also seems genuine that Nick is having some like reconsideration of like what Gawker should be doing. I mean, like that that part right. seems real like it's right. not it's not it's not entirely like business driven right but it's just like he he incentivized people to do like increasingly to, to do stories like this basically the whole system was designed to encourage that and to do like absolutely anything to like you know post first worry later all like all these that's the that's, design that's of my, the system and yeah. then for him then so the 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 like much less important but still very visible controversy now is about like like you have a you have someone who created a media organization to do things like this and then turned and said not anymore. Right. Well, and, I just feel like there's like there's like what are the guidelines there? Like there have to be some. I don't know that if Gawker. I don't know what Gawker does internally. I have no fucking idea. But like, do they have a rule book for these are the kinds of stories and these are the things you have no, to track out? No, it's just like and, people sort of come in and they, they look back at what has been there and and they're like we're going to do more of it. And like it's a right. it's like an institutional thing passed on. Right. Like anywhere, you sort of like you have an idea of of what a story. <laughs> well, some is. people have books. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm saying, like some organizations have like this is our. There is a Gawker brand book now, as we learned. Well, anyway, yeah. but that, yeah, it's, it's, a, a, it, it's a big, book. it's an ugly thing. It's like an, uh, it's like an, it's an ugly story, and then an ugly internal story, and like yeah. I, the context of of like websites and the web media being sort of beleaguered or not. I mean, like every a lot of places are still really successful now, but uh, the the context of of publications like that facing down like a very uncertain future is important right um uh, uh okay one other thing before we go oh 
Oh, yeah. Uh, oh. Oh. Sorry, Magnus reminded me that we should mention the aftermath of this, which is that a bunch of people, well, a hand, a couple of people have quit Gawker now. Max Reed, uh, the editor-in-chief, and Tommy Craig's, who's, what was his Executive title? editor. Executive editor. And, and, you know, maybe there will be more to follow. And I just want to say, like, well, actually what's, like, really upsetting about this story is that, and they basically quit over the idea that editorial didn't make a decision to pull the post, that it was made by business. Uh, by business. And which I totally understand, although they're like this, of like of all the stories for it to like to for you to, the hill to yeah, die I'm on, sure like no one wants this is a shitty one. hill to die on, like for Max or anybody else, only because like. It's but just I think you can. Hard, de- it's hard to defend the story itself. But I think you can agree that the post is bad, and also agree that the reasons it was pulled were bad. Yes, I think you. Well, not the not the reasons you, it was pulled, but well, like but the, 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 the way, process. The way. The, sorry, yeah, the yeah, process. The, the problem not the is reasons, you, it's very hard to hold the two things in mind. Like like here's an there's an organizational breakdown, and then there's this thing that I hate. What what's had me thinking over the last few days is like there's no one's really been too eager to like change this into a conversation about like publishers and editorial and, and you know, the firewall between them. And like, that's everyone's the, the the issue preceding that is so passionate that no one wants, this is like such a bad time to have that conversation. It's toxic. Like it's all like, I mean, but that conversation is about to get really weird. But it also exposes like the, how permeable that wall is between business and editorial because of like the crazy pressures and totally new reality that advertisers have put on this medium well but their reality is an older one theirs is like we have an editorial team you could say it's very similar to somewhere like the times where it's like you have people who who worry more about revenue who actually sell the ads who talk to advertisers you have people who make the content you have people who divide them and yeah these things are always somehow permeable but each side has leverage on the other the ad people are like listen without us you're you don't have jobs right but the edit people are like without us you don't have anything to sell you don't have jobs <laughs> and what's getting what's getting to be really interesting about this and which is really not relevant to any of this stuff is that part of seeding your your uh, business responsibilities as a publisher part of saying that you're no longer the company that sells ads against your content or Part of saying that we're going to publish directly to a platform that sells ads for us is changing that relationship right. and, and getting rid of the leverage on one side. But like, other publishers are changing the relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, because, you, it, because, because, for instance, the BuzzFeed model, like, permits so much that would be questionable to, like, a publication. I mean, even a publication like Gawker. Just like, you mean sponsored content? I mean, just no, like... No, they run the, sponsored just, content. Just Everyone, the, like, the Times run sponsored content. But just yeah. the looseness between, like, what is and is not content and how it's defined and how it's created no i think they have uh, they and almost everyone now has a pretty still a pretty traditional view on the separation of church and state and it's not until you've really seen people try the distributed content thing the direct posting thing and i don't think you can really understand how that relationship changes until you've seen it and i think it's going to be pretty serious like if if the business side, you know, the the, fear, the feared business side that's going to mess with your stories is a different company entirely that has a lot of control over not just your distribution, but your ad sales. Yeah. Like, there's no negotiation. You a don't Gawker, have any leverage. A Gawker doesn't exist in that world. Well, I mean, they basically don't. Maybe not. Yeah. No, and they maybe, can't. maybe now no, people are I don't are mean like, Gawker themselves. I mean that 
the creation of something as brazen as Gawker doesn't exist in that world. Maybe it doesn't. Because Facebook won't tolerate it because they have like guidelines that are essentially puritanical. Right. And so, so you so you have in that situation uh, the the problem of appealing a decision to a platform and being and and they're like, "Well, no, is, this doesn't fit with our guidelines. We don't like this." Like right. the story is, we can't sell against it. This story contains proprietary information about a company or whatever. Right. And or, I mean, like, they're, think about they're telling why, us, and this is why the platform thing is so so dangerous. But think about so, YouTube like telling artists to pull their own songs down, like that type of situation. Like you can see that happen a lot. I right, mean, and I this mean, is you, I think the stuff is kind of like more easily workable when you're talking about entertainment. It's probably much less compatible with like the edge cases. It's of probably things. much less compatible with things that we that end up being like really important news too. But also things that so that what's what's like the this the Gawker story muddies this because people are like I hate like this is bad. This man shouldn't have been outed. And this is this is the public opinion on this. And so that is not a. It's not like the ideal mindset. Right, this is not. About... This is not the place to have the conversation. I mean, then that story is not the place to have the conversation around because, like, this, like it, it muddies it. I mean, I think this is what you're saying, but it muddies the conversation about the real thing that's happening about this line between. Yeah, the the internal freakout is like we the business side is now meddling with the editorial side, right. and the the reason that that seems insane is because both sides have or had leverage. The reason that a lot of institutions would freak out if something like that happened is because it felt like there was some sort they'd come to some sort of at least like tense partnership where they could affect one another. Yeah. But if you're if you're one of a if you're one of a thousand publications providing content for a platform and the platform's like, hey, this isn't this doesn't quite work for us, or like this crosses a line that we have for our reasons, right? Uh, you have you, you don't have anything like they don't care. You're you don't have any leverage. You don't. You're not giving them anything that they absolutely need or that couldn't be replaced. Right. Unless you reach some like very high tier of partnership that, but that's like a you know yeah far further in the future. Yes, much <laughs> in some sort of in some sort of flying cars future. All right. Well, we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, there's a lot more that we could talk about. In fact, we didn't get to the second thing, which is Uber, which I really wanted to talk about because I actually haven't followed the Uber story, but. You when you came in here, you said that Uber defeated De Blasio, and I don't understand the full ramifications of that because I have a vague sense. I've been not working for the last three days, so that has been not. That's like me not really reading well, all the news. I mean, so De Blasio proposed. Can you do this in two minutes? Yes, in, in two one minutes. minute. Okay, very quickly. So De Blasio administration proposed that Uber should be capped at one percent growth in new drivers over the next year while yeah. it studies congestion. Um, Uber mounted this huge campaign. Um, they read these videos like about how it's disenfranchising like um, nurses who want to commute to the Bronx at two in the morning um, and also like uh, outer borough neighborhoods. And they this huge PR campaign. And today they had celebrities tweeting. Neil Patrick Harris and Kate Upton were both tweeting uh, about this. And so and as like hours after these tweets went out, like the Blasi administration announced that they were not going to cap Uber growth and the study would only be four months. So it was like complete capitulation. Yeah. So this is like Taylor Swift and Apple. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. Yeah. Right? yeah but, but has anybody written about that yet? No. Not the yet. Taylor I'm Swift sure thing will. was like, be a hot take tomorrow. The Taylor Swift thing was like you know there was self interest. It was like oh here's someone wielding her power against a, a partner, and it was like 
kind of interesting in that way. These are just celebrities who maybe were paid. It's hard to tell. Probably got like, you know, I mean, probably free something. Uber for life like, or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, but why the, it's, would they need Uber? It's the most transparent, <laughs> like, like oh, it's, it's they like don't need very, Uber. I don't most, understand. Is Neil Patrick Harris using Uber? Apparently. Yeah, well, sure, the most insane the thing was there was a CNBC journalist like tweeting like one of the Uber pre digested lines like on Twitter. It was like really incredible. Really? Yes. I mean, listen, I actually. I like Uber a lot. I think it's great. I think they have yeah. like totally revolutionized like a, a system that is completely broken and old and not working. Yeah, yeah I think they're going to absolutely win every fight they have like this and companies like them are going to win fights like this. It's like I don't think any but, I don't think the political apparatus anywhere is like prepared for what's about to happen well, to them. But then in like 10 years once ever once it's like the sharing economy people are sort of in charge of a lot of industries, then it's then everyone's going to be like, "Oh, like we actually just like, yeah, it's something we just went through like an enormous deregulation and we're sort of starting from scratch. Like, like, especially <laughs> because that time will coincide when a lot of the stuff is automated. Like it'll be like, <laughs> like you're going to have, you know, Uber wants to be driverless by 2030. Right. And so like yeah. all these people that they're all these jobs are talking about creating right now have like a 15 year shelf life. Right. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's like um, a, it's a huge 2030s. No, actually, let me tell you how Think long, how long it is. I'll have a 15 year old daughter in 2030. That's how long it is. Do you <laughs> want her driving? <laughs> Do you want her driving? <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, well, Certainly not in Westchester. I can Google tell you that. Part of, the, oh, part of the insane thing about it to me was though, is like the inability to hold two ideas. It's like you can be like pro a lot of what Uber's done, but also think maybe this we should like the, we should have some regulation well, about like some of this. It turns out that like critical thought about big ideas, about big things that are like facing us right now require more than just like a single black and white opinion. I do think like we live in a country where black and white opinions are the easiest and most accessible and most frankly enjoyable for people to have. It's like we have two parties, Republican or Democrat. One is for a bunch of stuff. The other one is against. They rarely agree on things. It's like really kind of childish. Very I love juvenile. the idea of like the, the Republican Party sort of trying to adopt Uber. And they seem kind That's of they so seem kind good. of uneasy about it. They're like, I don't yeah. know if we would need yeah. this. Or like, is U, is Uber does Uber seem more like a Republican thing or a Democrat no, well, thing? Yeah, the, it kind there of, was, it's there kind was of an amazing fit. time story that tied up like how much presidential candidates were using Uber. Yeah, like and who's, who's Republicans, the, the biggest user? Republicans by far. Yeah, Jeb Bush is taking one all around to his yeah, campaign stops. Uber. Him and him and uh, uh, who are the celebrities? Neil Patrick Harris. But yeah, the, the political dimensions of the Uber thing are like really complicated. There's it's a story. It's a story about like local politics and and corruption in the taxi industry but it's also a much bigger story about like labor and job classification right and, and transit and, and generally yeah, and public transit it's like know. it's such a and also like yeah it's also a debate about the way cities are designed and how we are actually going to build cities for the future i mean it's actually it's also like a that there is there should be a congestion study done i mean it should actually be a good one i don't know what they're going to do but like we do have a problem like the city is not built for the future it's built like to collapse essentially well i mean right. it's going to be underwater in 50 years anyways <laughs> like why point. bother yeah but 20 years prior to that we'll have driverless cars on the streets of Manhattan. <laughs> The change so much and like stuff like uber is going to be a huge part of it and then to like to like <laughs> cities are get closer like, to the microphone <laughs> and and so now to see this whole process like like distilled to some celebrity tweets saying like de blasio don't ruin our city by banning uber and then to have de blasio and and like taxi union people sort of i mean taxi industry people sort of aligned in like this weird thing about congestion it's like this is you're fighting this shitty little political fight it's like the first time i've seen a a recent a recent tech company 
carry out like something really big in purely political terms it's like all obsessed with shitty optics it's like watching a presidential campaign do you think it has anything to do with the fact that their um head of comms is oh yeah yeah, david David plouffe flew in and was (laughs) like yo what's up they're so far ahead of everyone else on waging this kind of fight because like if you had if it task rabbit's probably a bad single example but if you had a company that really had um, a monopoly on huge amounts of like freelance labor and was and that if their decisions and the way they ran things had a, a huge effect on on the way people worked if like suddenly there were a whole bunch more unemployed people who needed to do work through services like that like that's going to become a big national Which, labor why debate. Google and Amazon Sorry. are both getting into it now. Why like, isn't there an Uber for like plumbers? There is. There, there are is. like five. What's it called? Amazon. Amazon's doing yeah, Uber. Google. Google Uber. Just, <laughs> well, Google just announced they're getting into on-demand services too. So it's Handy like, was doing. No, but this. honestly, can I just say something? As a person who has needed plumbers and electricians and all kinds of shit like on a regular basis right trying to find somebody who's good and will get the job done in a reasonable amount of time is impossible well, we seriously no, Laura and i were like should we use angie's list i don't know what to do like how do you find a plumber in no this but these, that's why that's why this is such a big deal because these things are so ripe for yeah they're, they're such huge opportunities like uber for for freelancers Right, but then the the result is that the resulting, like, uh, the Uber outcome, at least, is that you have one company managing a huge workforce that it doesn't consider a workforce, that instead of plumbers being, like, these thousands of of separate businesses that that are still, like... Instead of them being, like, uh, independent, they are on a platform. (laughs) See? (laughs) Basically what you're saying. It all comes back. Just so I understand what you're saying to me. Right. But, but the, but like the, I mean, the life is a, life is an independent plumber, I'm sure, is incredibly, incredibly hard. And like you have to worry about your own health care and you're a small business owner and all this stuff. If it works out, you have some autonomy. If it, if it doesn't, it's like, you know, it's terrifying, whatever. And, but, but the, it's still different from being one of the thousand Uber plumbers. Right. Because, Because you are then part of, you are no longer part of the economy in a very direct way. You are now part of this like managed subset of the economy. You're not, you're not an employee, so you don't get the benefits of that. You're not a freelancer, so you don't, you don't get whatever like less tangible benefits of that. You are just like this, you're part of a a, like system with probably a little bit more, uh, like a little bit less room to breathe, like a more efficient managed system serving clear goals. I think this might be the great question of our of our time, which is like, can independence exist? Sure, in a, it's just, in a connected world. Just in in this immediate future scenario, it will be very important to navigate these questions, especially with regards to labor. And Uber, as the first example, is like really something to watch. I think we, just, just, have to, we just have to regulate the crap out of everybody. Well, the, well you can't regulate Uber. This is, this is the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> like they reject like part of the federal the, regulations. Yeah. Well, ha 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 ha. <laughs> hey, worked for Microsoft. Okay. We got to wrap. Didn't it didn't it work for Microsoft? I don't know. Didn't work for Microsoft. No. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. Well, that's our show. Uh John and Matt, thank you for for being here. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. We're recording. This was yeah, thanks for <laughs> we've been recording. This is very this is a very interesting episode. I don't know if people will enjoy it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um I mean because we got kind of like in nerdy inside baseball y for like we didn't even talk about video games. And we didn't talk about video games. Well we did for like a second talk about Arkham And then we immediately quit recording Arkham Knight. Um which is a game that we're both playing apparently. All right, well, I'll have you. I'll have you on next time. We'll just talk about video games. What do you play? Are you playing a video game right now? I'm playing that game on the iPhone where you try to design a disease. What is that? 
Oh, plaguing. Plague. Oh, that sounds cool. That's it's fun. fun. It's like kind of. It's weirdly relaxing. You design like, a disease. Well, you pick your symptoms. You, all right, we can't. I got. I got. I got. All right, kill everybody on the planet. It's the only way to win. Oh, that sounds like fun. That is the only way to win. Then we don't have to worry about what platform you're on. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's podcast. We'll be back next week with more. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. Although I understand a disease is being designed that is going to wipe them out. 